You are listening to the APSI Podcast, the association of people supporting employment first, with your host, Chris Davies. Okay, welcome everyone uh, to the Minnesota APSI Podcast. As you can see, we are live and in person, and I couldn't be more excited uh, to be doing that today, especially with my good friend and uh, and sort of... Uh, uh, my partner in employment, increasing employment for people with disabilities, Mr. Bob Wagner, is here with us today. Say hi, Bob. Hey, everybody. All right, and uh, we're coming uh, live on location in downtown St. Paul. Here we go. Uh, so, as you know, those of you that have been following the Minnesota APSI podcasts over, over the last year and a half, uh, we like to v- invite a variety of different guests in to, to tell their stories and also share their insights on uh, employment uh, for people with disabilities. And for anyone that is turning in for the first time, uh, first and foremost, welcome. And for anyone that has never heard of APSI before, we are especially glad you're watching uh, here today. I always like to start out, you know, this podcast by talking a little bit about APSI and Minnesota APSI and, and reading to you our purpose statement so you know what we're all about. APSI is the only national organization of its kind that solely believes, advocates for integrated, competitive employment for all people. And we have had a Minnesota chapter basically since APSI started. And in Minnesota, you know, we see ourselves as an action-oriented organization, and we exist to bring people together to raise expectations so that people with disabilities can be employed, contribute, and assume their roles and responsibilities as citizens in their communities. At Minnesota APSI, we believe that employment is the same wages, standards, responsibilities, expectations, and opportunities available to any working age adult. And I know our our guest here today believes that as well that one person at a time, employment is indeed the avenue out of poverty and isolation. So let's move into it, shall we? You ready, Bob? All right. Uh, This morning I was thinking I want to offer, before I introduce myself, two possible sources of inspiration and challenge. 31 years ago, uh, ADA was passed, and we made great progress in education, transportation, access to public buildings, but employment has remained stubbornly low. So you have the opportunity, you have the opportunity not only to transform, to, to change people's lives, but also transform the culture that we live in and bend, bend that moral arc of the universe. Secondly, I want to share a wonderful quote by Virginia Satir. She was asked how she would measure her success. And her answer was, and I quote, I measure my success by what I did for others, and did I use all the gifts given to me? Well, I'm here to challenge you to use all the gifts given to you. I'm here. I don't really enjoy public speaking. It's not a very comfortable place for me. Um, I'm here to sh- because I, I want to use all the gifts given to me, and I suspect you're here for the same reason. So without further ado, I'll, I'll give you a, a brief introduction of myself. I'm a psychologist with 35-plus years in, across many addictions, mental health, 
uh, many addictions, many disabilities, um, uh, mental health, addictions, and uh, disability services. From 2000 to 2016, I was a supervisor and one-time interim manager at Ramsey County Disability Services. Uh, I'm also on a caddy waiver, medical assistance, and PCAs make my life work. Because on December 26, 2004, the day of the tsunami that devastated Indonesia, I was body surfing off the coast of Puerto Varta. The surf was rough and the waves were high. Um, however, my, as my wife, with Jenny, my wife Jenny would tell you, I'm, a, I'm always a little bit of a risk taker, and I wanted to measure my skills. I knew right away they were beyond me, and I knew I needed to get to the shore, but one last wave caught me before I got there. When that wave hit, I knew instantly that my body couldn't save me. Held my breath and yelled when I surfaced. Um, that last wave changed my life instantly and forever. But um, I got a little bit of luck there. There was one person on the beach that stormy day. One person. I had watched. He never got in the water the whole week until that wave hit me. Um, he knew that I was in trouble. I had watched his three little girls, probably ages 5 to 11 the entire week. They were out there boogie boarding. And the youngest one, little redhead, would get tipped over and she'd come up sputtering for her dad and I'd give him the thumbs up that she was just fine. Dr. Bill Smith saved my day, my life that day. He, uh, he knew I was in trouble. He came out and secured my neck and uh, had him brought me to, to shore. Um, my neck was broken and my spinal cord was severely damaged. My heart stopped a couple times, so I have mild brain injury. One of his daughters found my wife, and I motioned her to come close. I said, honey... I can't feel my legs, and I need you to be strong. She's been that and more every day. I'm not here today without her. She's been a rock uh, every night. She's up once or twice to help me out with my cares. Um, you know, in a moment, I had gone from a fully independent and very physically active 49-year-old to someone who needs others to dress, bathe me, and helped me with my other bodily functions. I spent the next 22 months away from home in the hospital first, in the hospital. I was in ICU, I think, a dozen times, 13 times. I, I nearly died a couple times. Um, and after four months in the hospital, I went to Courage Center, rehab center, for another 22 months, not 22 months, 18 months. There we go. Um, while I was still paralyzed, in my second month, Chris, I met with... Uh, vocational rehab services and told the counselor that my dream was to work. My dream was really to work and walk again. The walking hasn't panned out. Um, Chris was enthusiastic and she, and she believed in me. She said, we'll find a way. But the reality was I didn't know how or how much I could work again. It took me 23 months to go back to work. It took me another two years to return full time to work. I was overwhelmed, scared, and scarred by low self-esteem. My determination was only slightly bigger than my fear and self-doubt. Um, going back to work was overwhelming, but I'm here to tell you that my worst day working has been better than not knowing those days, not knowing whether I'd work again. Going back to work helped me believe that my injuries no longer defined me. 
No, we're good right there. Um, let's see. Where am I? My manager, uh, Andrea Zuber, saw my disability experiences bringing value and my self-esteem was at its lowest. When I saw my spinal cord injury as deficit, she saw it as gift. I'm here today because people believed I could work. That's why I'm here today. You know, words can't really capture what going back to work meant to me. I could use my gifts. I could contribute and help pay the bills and make a difference, make a living. Second only to coming home to my wife, Jen, going back to work felt like I was getting my life back. I felt a profound responsibility to that Pacific wave. I could give voice for people with disabilities wanting to be full community members. It's likely my spinal cord injury brought more value to my work than everything else I had learned. It enhanced all of my gifts uh, and knowledge. The price was high, but the lived experience gave me a hard-won authenticity. Damn, I miss uh, exercise. and I miss being able to dress myself and use the toilet, right? Um, the injury took much, but it gave more. Over time, the loss became gift. But this isn't just my story. It's a story of most people with disabilities. I know the fear and self-doubt of whether I'd be able to live a regular life, and especially whether I'd be able to work. I know institutional care. Being told I, I had a 6.30 bedtime uh, when I was 50 um, because it fit their staffing pattern. For the record, that never happened. I know what it's like to be served by large public institutions, bureaucracy, government paperwork. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I know the weekly experience of being treated as a client, as a patient, but most importantly, though, I know that it's possible to live and work in the community and all people have those same dreams and possibilities. I know the work pace, as well as the pace of change, challenges all of us. But if you're waiting to live and work in the community, I'm sure it seems awfully slow. My story is a normal human story, because disability is a normal human experience. One might be born with a disability, acquired prior to their senior years, but if you're lucky, but if you're lucky to live long enough, nearly everyone, everyone here will experience disability. My desire to return home, my need to work, the desire nearly every person with disability shares. I've heard I've done this a presentation that I tried to distill down and, and, and for today uh, with county case managers, and they say, "Yeah, that's Bob Wagner. He's not typical, though, and certainly." There's truth that I had advantages that most do not. I had an advanced degree in a licensure. But here's what's nearly universal. I was fearful. I doubted my ability to work. And Andrea's and Chris's belief in me made all the difference. My wife's belief in me made all the difference. I was a professional from inside the system, so I knew the, my way around. And if they made a difference for me, think how important you are to the average individual who's largely dependent on you. Your energy, your beliefs, and finding a way makes a difference between somebody using their gifts, being included or not. Yeah, you know, Bob, I've uh, known you a long time. You know, as you know, um, 
and I've heard you I've heard you tell your your personal story before uh, at conferences at, at larger team meetings uh, but sitting next to you uh, in this this close environment and, and having you uh, you know tell your story to our audience and and you know to me once again uh, move me in a way I've, I've never been moved before um, and I think anybody out there watching can see why we were so excited to meet with you today. Uh, that Bob really, not not just his story, but his spirit, uh, really embodies all the things we're trying to accomplish. You know, as an organization. Uh, thank you, thank mm. you for sharing your your story. And I know that you also have a real vested interest in the big picture. You mm -hmm. know, employment for people with disabilities. You know. We would love to hear, you know, some of your thoughts and insights on on uh, the current landscape and 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 where we go. Hmm. Thanks, Chris, uh, and thanks again, Bob, for for sharing your your story. Uh, I had asked Bob to, you know, to talk a little bit about, you know, the history of employment for people with disabilities, and I just want to ask you, Bob, you know, in your own words, why haven't we fulfilled the promise of the ADA? Why you know I, there's no simple answer to that, but for for me to answer that question, I always have to start with that ideas create our history. I, I saw a wonderful quote uh, about 30 years ago, and I always remember. But it says, um, "Watch your thoughts, for your your thoughts become your actions. Watch your actions, because your actions become your habits. Watch your habits, because your habits become your character, and watch your character because it becomes your destiny. So." As a psychologist, you know, ideas underpin everything we do ultimately. Um, we inherit, so let me talk about a foundation, and then I'll, um, I'll segue into, uh, into employment and how that happened. So we inherit our ideas from our parents, our peers, and the culture around us without even knowing it, okay? Um, and those ideas create our personal and collective history. Let's start with some American ideas, okay? Uh, I think it's probably resonate with most people. One of the foundational ideas about America is that white people were superior, and black people were not only inferior, but subhuman, okay? That's, you know, two million Africans died on the way to be sold as commodities. Um, those black lives didn't matter. Over 6,500 black people were lynched and I've read the history. I can't find one person charged with a crime for that. Those blacks' lives that matter. Those ideas. So ideas don't just disappear. And they're in our culture, and we inherit them and make them part of who we are without even knowing it. Here's the best example, and then I'll move into uh, disability uh, unemployment. In 1940, so now I'll move from, you know, founding of our country in the 1800s to the early 1900s to 1940, a husband and wife team did what's called the black and white doll study. And they, they had uh, a cohort of five-year-old black and white girls. And they showed them a white doll and a black doll. And they said, well, which one's nicer? Which one's prettier? Which one's smarter? Which one do you like? Nearly universally, they all liked the white doll. They're five years old, Okay. They had learned from the culture around them. Um, 
in 2009, that study was replicated, first year of President Obama's uh, administration. And the, the, the black girls, little five-year-old black girls still chose the white doll as better, prettier, smarter. In other words, as superior. Ideas don't disappear. They either evolve or devolve. William Faulkner has a great quote. He said, the past isn't dead. It's not even in the past. Okay? So with that example and quote in mind, how is it that 80% of people with disabilities and caseloads are unemployed? In my reading of history, as America left the farm and moved for jobs to the cities, assembly line work became the norm, right, Chris? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right, yeah. Okay, thank you, Henry Ford. Um, on the farm, people with disabilities in small communities typically uh, found a way to, to have people do what they, they were included and they were capable. People kind of own the people in their, a smaller community. In the city, uh, that doesn't happen nearly as much. We become more anonymous. Um, you know, so assembly line work. Um, if you couldn't keep up on the assembly line, you were unable or disabled. That's really where a disabled term came from. Okay, you were disabled. Um, hard bigotry over time became the norm, and people with significant disabilities were seen as subhuman. Thanks for turning the page, Chris. Um, doctors were uh, were advising parents that they really couldn't care for their children, and it became routine to send uh, kids with disabilities to large state institutions, and adults were committed to them. So. I mean, here's some examples. Over 13,000 Minnesotans were buried in unmarked or unnumbered and numbered graves. Yeah. There was no employment, mm-hmm. okay? Thousands were given electroshock therapy, lobotomies. Think about that. You can't do that unless you see people as the other, as subhuman. So not so long ago, people with disabilities were seen as so different, they were the other. The other was our primary belief system. They believe, if you can believe people to be subhuman because of their disability, the ideas justified our actions. Um, boy, I've got some repetition in here. Here's a good example. In, in 1980, um, Bill Zuber was hired as the new Ramsey County Disability mm-hmm. Manager. As part of his orientation, he was sent up to Anoka State Hospital for a tour. And at the end of the tour, he asked the director, does everybody with, uh, he probably used a different term, sure. with intellectual disabilities need feeding tubes? She said, no, no, we had a, a oh, what's that called, a strike mm-hmm. several months ago. And uh, it was necessary because we didn't have enough staff. And she said, now it's just been convenient. We haven't gotten around to taking them out. So... Mm. If we see individuals with significant disabilities, either it's okay to lock them up and forget them, marry, bury them in un, unmarked graves, and deny them civil rights in sick feeding tubes down their throats because it's more convenient and efficient. So that's kind of the foundation. Hard bigotry, that hard bigotry didn't disappear, um, but it did evolve. In 40-some years, so what I want to suggest is 40-some years, our country doesn't go from locking people up for life with no rights to treating them as capable, seeing them right. as capable. Think about that. Forty 
47 years. Yeah. Not very long. Yeah, 41 years, actually. Yeah, 19, yeah. you know. Um, as capable, full citizens, more than, right, no more shorter. than racism or sexism have disappeared, right? Absolutely. Um, so I maintain that the other paradigm, seeing people with disabilities as subhuman, has evolved into the sub bigotry of low expectations. So I'm getting us closer to, you know, the sub bigotry sure. of low expectations is the current dominant uh, paradigm, and it lives in all of us. Okay, I want to suggest that. So current employment, um, 80% unemployment. So how did it evolve? So as we deinstitutionalized, starting because the Medicaid waiver was passed in 1981, we started bringing people back to the community in America. Uh, we resegregated people into large day programs. Certainly an improvement over warehousing them um, in large state institutions. But it was based, again, it was based on an idea it was based on a readiness idea. We'll get them ready to work, right. and then they'll go to work. But um, unfortunately, you don't learn to swim on the side of a pool. All right? You need to do it. Um, so, you know, at some point, and I, don't, I can't recall off the top of my head, but the, GA, the government accounting offices, uh, offices um, did a large-scale nationwide study in America, and they found that less than 5% ever left those day programs. Sure. They never got ready, okay? Um, you know, and then the other idea, so then supported employment grew up, right? Um, as an idea that um, we'll, you know, so, so traditional supported employment approaches were also based on soft bigotry. In particular, they assumed that people with intellectual disabilities were only capable of very simple tasks. Sure. They assume that people, this, so they, the problem is they kind of, you know, and you know this stuff well, so you can add to this at any point, but uh, they, they assume not only what people could do, but what they were interested in doing. Again, it was really, um, really low employment rates, but, but partly why, you know, partly it was because they used what I call the front door approach. You know, they had people fill out applications. Um, the thing is, you need to get in front of people to get a job, right? To make a connection. I hired people for over 30 years. And HR always was, um, oh, I can't think of the right word, but, but they were giving me who were the most qualified based on their resume. The problem is, using the, for the front door approach, mm-hmm. is that it's a comparative approach. Right. And people with significant disabilities, because of their disability, they don't have similar job histories. They don't have similar um, academic att- attainment. Right. So they never got in the door. Yeah. They never got in front of people. Yeah, the traditional, uh, the traditional method of, of uh, hiring is really built around screening out, not screening in. Exactly. And uh, to, you know, people with disabilities uh, looking for work need to be screened in most right. of the time. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Thank you, my friend. Yes, sir. Um, so, and so that's why I would say that's why um, that approach rarely got people in front of people. Um, that's partly why Discovery has far better access. They use informational meetings, that face-to-face conversations, and possible connections. One of, uh, and, and both of you know this well, Chris, but I had the pleasure of working with you for two, two and a half years as the infor- um, 
What was my inform, uh, referral, the referral coordinator. coordinator? There yeah, we go. Yeah. There you go. I told source. you my memory yeah. was a problem. <laughs> um, and I got the opportunity to meet with parents and individuals who wanted to work. Some were more doubtful than the others, but you know, invariably, I would meet a young man or woman, yeah. and you knew that intangible. You knew after at the end of the hour that somebody's going to meet this young person or middle-aged person. And they're going to say. This person wants to work. This person's really interested in what we do. Uh, they're likable. I want them to be part of my team, and I'm going to find a way. Yeah. And, and that's what needs to happen, yeah. right? Yeah, making that connection yeah. to open that door. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to give you any more statistics. What I do want to say, though, is here, leave it. Leave, let me see that yet, though. I'm, you know, I can give you lots of statistics. But, you know, let's just go back to 20%, you know, of people in county caseloads in Minnesota are employed, maybe a hair higher at this point. And that's a big statistic, but remember those numbers. There's real people, real people in that 80% who want to work and haven't joined sure. the workforce. So I'm going to say, where do we go from here? Um, well, we start by embracing full civil rights, employment first philosophy and approach, we start by seeing the soft bigotry first in ourselves and disability services. So I'm going to end with something from uh, Martin Luther King. He said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So I'm going to pose this question to you. Are you and your organization helping it bend towards justice? What history are you making? Are you part of the solution or treading water? Because you're either helping the 80% uh, unemployed get a job or you are part of the problem by enabling, enabling the unemployment with your inaction or not improving your skills. It's really that simple. Much like white privilege, you have the privilege of working. Okay? Much like white folks need to be allies to people of color, everyone in this audience needs to be an ally to the 80%. I'm confident that most of you already are. Um, and I'm just going to end with, you can't be neutral about this problem. In your pivotal roles, you're either engaged in transforming people's lives or you're enabling unemployment and consequent poverty. There is no middle ground. That's it. Yeah. Um, so much, so much to, to uh, unpack and think about there uh, with those words, Bob. I mean, you not only, you not only bring a personal uh, perspective uh, to to employment for people with disabilities with your your personal story and all the things that that you faced uh, to get back to working uh, but you also have a, a deep understanding of of the phenomenon as it is in the history of, of employment and and how we we have treated people as is less than and uh, you know I think one thing you really bring up is, is is that it's a right it is a right mm. to be able to to work employment mm -hmm. is a right an inalienable right for human beings mm -hmm. and anyone who has the desire to work uh should have that opportunity we need to find a way we need to find a way mm -hmm. exactly exactly I mean, some of it's not only the ideas that we've uh that we've used but also it's been our lack of imagination you know Right. You know, I was thinking about that, actually, when you were talking about the 1980s and the traditional 
the, when supported employment became an idea mm-hmm. and we started to practice it or some, some agencies across the country started to practice it. And originally it was really all about, well, what do we think people can do? Mm-hmm. And we think yeah. people can do this and, mm-hmm. and that's all they can do. And, right. And the the processes that you alluded to, the discovery, uh, discovering personal genius mm-hmm. is a is a process that Kaposia uses or a method Kaposia uses uh, from Griffin Hammond Associates, mm-hmm. and uh, are really they turn that 180 degrees mm-hmm. to uh, to to pot, to what does the person want to do? Mm-hmm. It it always needs to start just like any mm-hmm. individual. Yep. With that person, you know, yeah. what does that person want to do, and and uh, and the expectation, whether you have a disability or not, starts starts at birth. Mm-hmm. You know, starts starts you know with the people that believe in you, uh, make all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. So, you follow that person. So um, I also wanted, you know, I I, you know, don't speak from a holier than thou perspective. I've had my own soft bigotry, and I'm sure it still lives. And when mm-hmm. when I was at the county, there's Several times I said to, you know, I thought in my mind, I said, this person, you know, they need a DTH, they need a day program. I, I have to tell you a story um, about that. Uh, I was on the, uh, a leadership team for Project Search, and Project Search, uh, the long story, it's full job immersion for kids in their last year of school instead of going to transition school. And their success rates are actually much like uh, Discovery. About 75% of those young adults end up employed. And uh, I remember somebody interviewing her young, uh, her, her young woman named Andrea. And uh, I remember doing the interview. We probably got three words out of her in 45 minutes. I thought, yeah, she's just, she probably needs a day program. And, uh, but she had advocates on that leadership team. And, and they not only... Um, voted her in, but they put her in, uh, of all things, a receptionist job. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, my God. You know, in the first two months, mm-hmm. so six months later, we're doing an information meeting for the following fall, and I and each kid has their own kiosk with a uh, looping video that tells their story. And I roll over to Andrea, and I said, I said, uh, Andrea, the first two months here, I, I couldn't even get eye contact. Mm-hmm. You know, as I sign in for a monthly meeting, the second two months you would, uh, you know, say my name and you know engage uh, with a word or two. And I said, the last two months we've had conversations, and uh, I rolled away, and you know she smiled and, and engaged with me, and rolled away, and I, I noticed a man watching us, and um, turns out it was Jim. I said I, I correctly assumed he was her dad, and I said, you know, I've been yeah. just so impressed with your daughter, and uh, he said. He said, yeah, his mother and I thought she would always be like a five-year-old. And he said, and now we can see her world has changed and, and many things are possible. Um, and for me, I really chalk it up to the social learning because instead of being with other 20-year-olds the year round, they were with 50-year-olds and 41-year-olds and right. 28 with all these advanced social mm-hmm. skills. And uh, their soft skills were off the charts. And that's what sure. a job does when you're included. You know, you learn from the people yes. around you. We all do. Yes. Yeah. So, anyhow. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's exactly right. I, yeah. I think sometimes people get judged as, oh, well, they can't do anything because we've never seen them do something. Right. But 
have they ever been asked to? Have they ever right. been expected to? Right. Have they been part of a team right. that that is working towards something? And it's amazing, you know. One of the one of the things, one of the reasons I've stayed involved in this movement and this this work for so long, and and will be probably until I'm, you know. They push you out the I, door. I don't think, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they push me out the door. I was, I was thinking of something more morbid. So thank you. Um, but the, um, the, uh, what uh, you're thinking of feet first. Yeah. What, what I was, what I was. Uh, the reason I've stayed involved is because of of the difference I do see it makes in people's lives. Yeah. I mean, when they are part of something, when they. Uh, have a literally a reason to get up yeah. in the morning. You know, yeah. most of the people, uh, you know, that we start working with at our agency might not have worked for 10 years mm-hmm. or, or at least a year or more. Mm-hmm. And day after day, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden to have a reason and a purpose and a place mm-hmm. to go, where you're going to be valued mm-hmm. and you're going to get value from. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a difference maker. Or they they worked at a job that they didn't enjoy at all. Right. They weren't interested in it, and uh, and now they have a job where they're excited about it. They know stuff about it. They're they're you know, it, it turns them on. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I you know, in that role too as a referral coordinator, you know, I would often you know, and we'll talk about this in the how to have effective conversations. But I'm jumping ahead just a bit, but. Uh, Parents would be doubtful sometimes, and so I would ask them questions about, sure. what do you do? How did you get there? I mean, invariably, they followed who they were. Okay? Invariably, sure. they followed who they were into, naturally into a job. Yeah. And, and so, too, um, people with disabilities are no different. You have to follow the person. Sure. That's what discovery does. Sure. Sure, and that kind of leads me into to sort of our, our final you know, subject matter, if you will, is, is kind of like, well, what can we do now? You know, we've mm-hmm. talked about where we've been, some of the things that are going on, but, but what do you see in your words uh, needs to be done uh, individually and collectively to, to really make a difference for employment? During break, Bob and I were, were talking about, you know, conversations and specifically how you have those conversations with people that don't believe, don't believe people with disabilities can and should be working in the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Bob, can you share, you know, with all of us some of your, your, your thoughts about how to have effective conversations yeah. in that regard? Absolutely. Um, or sometimes it's not even that people don't believe, but they're fearful or they have doubts, mm-hmm. um, whether it's the individual or the, the family members around themselves. I think having effective conversations with individuals or guardians who don't believe work is possible is second only. Second only to believing this person in front of you can work and that you can help make it possible. But I just need to start this with saying everything I tell you about effective conversations, I say this to the professionals. Everything I tell you about effective conversation about work starts and ends with the following few sentences. Stop documenting. This isn't another box to check off the appropriate form. Give them your full attention and eye contact. Mm -hmm. Make a connection. You play a crucial role second only to their guardian. Tell them you believe in them. And you know people who can help them get a job aligned with their skills and interests. Tell them it won't be quick or easy, but it'll be worth the time and hard work. 
It all starts there. Stop documenting. Give what you got from a, a good conversation, full eye contact, mm-hmm. like I'm getting from Chris right now. Okay? Stop documenting. You can document it later. So now let me, let me give you some, from my long experience in reading, what I think uh, are some effective uh, tools to use. You know, now ambiguity about change is normal. So validate and empathize their ambiguity. Something like, you know, I understand. Change is hard, and it's normal to have mixed feelings about leaving your day program. You have friends there. One side of the individual wants to work. Other side wants to stay with what they know, right? We all understand that, okay? Ambiguity is at the heart of change for all of us. For the parent or guardian, here, don't you turn it too soon, brother. Thank you. There you go. For the parent or guardian, part of them wants their son or daughter to work. Another part wants them to stay safe or um, keep their benefits safe. You know, think about yourselves. Think about your own history when you thought about making a job or relationship change or moving. Even just moving. It's like the inertia. I was like, ah, I'm not happy about this house, but boy, moving, that's hard. Okay? You know, and honestly, it's not your responsibility to change people's minds. Instead, help people find their own motivation to change. It's our responsibility to understand their thinking and ask them if they're open to some rethinking. So here's a couple insights from motivational interviewing. Um, Motivational interviewing emphasizes listening to two basic types of talk, change talk and sustained talk. Change talk is exactly what it sounds like. I'm tired of sitting at home and I'd like to get a job. Somebody wants to change, okay? Sustained talk is sticking with what they're currently doing. I tried to find a job, but I'd rather stay at the day program. So here's the key point. Give your energy to their openness, the change talk. Don't give much energy to the fear or opposition. That's sustained talk. It's really what you pay attention to. Note it, but the the part of them and the part of the parent the guardian who wants something better for their son or daughter, their family member, um, the individual wanting a fuller life, give your energy to that, okay? So here's some basic tips for disagreement. Ask open-ended questions. Make sure you understand their reasons for resistance. Agree on something other than the solution. There's always something valid in other people's point, right? Um, Don't argue. Just raises people's defenses. It'll create antibodies for the next conversation. Okay? Um, till the ground. Plant seeds for the next conversation. If somebody you have, I mean, for a lot of job developers, you have people coming to you. They're already ready to work, but maybe not the people around them. So till the ground. Plant the seeds for the next conversation. Um, tell them about other people's journey to work. Facing their fears. If you hear a good story, use it right away. Mm-hmm. Okay? Own it. Tell it the same day. Here's a story that I love. It's from a personal friend. We'll call him T. Uh, T, like myself, has a spinal cord injury. Although I call him one of the lucky ones. It's low, so he can take care of himself. He's not in medical assistance. It's lower. Uh, it's in the temporal section. Um, He's an interesting young man. He had a habit of 
climbing a tree. He had his favorite oak tree that over, overlooked the Mississippi. But the last time he climbed it, he woke up three weeks later in the hospital, of mm-hmm. course. Doesn't know what happened. But, you know, he was so miserable, which I could relate to, and I'm sure most people can relate to when they um, midlife um, experience a life-changing loss. And uh, he was in PT about eight or nine months after his injury. He was just so unhappy. Um, and he heard his PT in these large PT rooms say, he doesn't know if it was to him or to somebody else, but she said, well, you can focus on the hundred things you can't do or the thousand things that you can do. It's your choice. So mm-hmm. he it rattled around his brain, as he tells me, for a week or two. He decided to focus on the thousand things he could do, although he hasn't given up wanting to walk, right? Yeah. But he's younger than I am. Um, help the guardian focus on the thousand things. Help the family members focus on the thousand things. Um, another uh, tip I like or technique I use is ask permission to challenge them. Can I tell you what I see, what I know? I'd like to talk about that more. Are you willing? My go-to, and I use this, I use that story, by the way, at Kaposia. Sure, um, I remember. My go-to, can I give you some free advice? And, and I say, remember, you get what you pay for. So, <laughs> um, you know, if you get people to smile, chuckle a little bit, the door opens a little bit. I like I liked asking parents and guardians questions to help them relate. Have you ever experienced people not believing you could do something? Mm -hmm. Tell me about a time in your life you were able to display skills because you were in the right situation with the right mentor or coworker. Did you have it all figured out? Tell me about the path to your career. Did you have it all figured out in the beginning? Okay. Um, Let me turn the page here. Um, You know, I got... Questions I like to use. Uh, what about parents or guardians who do not want their family member to work? Par- parents shut down the ideas as not possible, unrealistic. You know, again, plant the seeds. I, let them know there's a cost. Mm-hmm. There's a cost to their son's or daughter's ability to use their gifts. The cost is to be included. The cost is the expense of them making money. I sometimes would say to parents, you're choosing predictability over possibility. Okay. Yeah, I like that, Bob. Yeah. Predictability over possibility. And there's a creative tension between the two. Okay. You know, and validate how tempting and understandable that it is to do so. Um, sometimes I would use this quote. I would say, well, it's from John Shedd. He said, um, a ship is safe in the harbor, mm. but that's not what ships are for. Right. Right? A ship is safe in the harbor. So, and sometimes I would just, uh, Ask imagine questions. Can you imagine they could be safe and could work? Let's try to imagine that, okay? Um, You can disagree by asking questions. Do you remember our last conversation when you talked about working? Remember, you kind of can hold up a mirror to them, that ambiguity about change. Um, You're going to point out an apparent Mm -hmm. discrepancy. You want her to have more friendships, yet you haven't been willing to help her find it, let her find a job. Can you help me understand that? Because work is where most of us form our social relationships. Um, Yeah, I already did that one. Okay, so guardians and professionals 
a lot of times they'll say, well, we tried it and it didn't mm-hmm. work. One of the things I encourage people to do is understand that failure is part of their process. Failure is part of the process. A great example is addictions. Relapse is part of the recovery, not the opposite. My son uses this in his practice. He says, especially working with teenagers and families, he says, try, fail. Try again, fail better. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. It's all about learning. Help them reframe, quote-unquote, failure. F- reframe, f- reframe them as uh, trying or whatever. I can't think of the word I want to use right now. So you, and you ask, well, what was learned? What didn't work? Mm-hmm. Most importantly, what did? Yeah. Okay? And, you know, if you don't mind me interjecting, I think that's a very natural part of human existence. Absolutely. And what I've observed over the years is that people with disabilities are more highly scrutinized mm-hmm. and expected to try once mm-hmm. and for it to work. And if right. it doesn't, well, see, yeah. you know, we told you so. Yeah. Whereas almost all of us have many trials and tribulations right. on our way to finding a career, right. have many different jobs, some, some better, some not as good. Right. And it's understandable with parents because... Sure. They want to keep, you, know, you and I both know that as parents. I mean, you want to keep your kiddo safe. Um, but we know we have to put them in situations where they're ready where um, they're going to learn. The only way they're going to learn is to try. That's right. right? But you, you're so right. I mean, people see the vulnerability first rather than seeing the whole person, the one that yearns to be included, mm-hmm. the one that yearns to use their gifts, yearns to you know, have a job. Yeah. Make a difference. Make a difference, exactly. Mm -hmm. So let me summarize real quick. Give your full attention and quit writing. Be curious. Ask open-ended questions. Uh, Prepare and practice for those uh, professionals. None of us fall out of bed knowing how to have a skillful conversation. Observe a coworker who's particularly skillful. Social learning, as I said earlier, is so powerful. But use what you learn, but... Be yourself. Be authentic. Um, be willing to try, fail, and learn from those attempts. I encourage people to uh, role play. Make a cheat sheet. Um, this is important. You're, you're helping people um, change their lives. Validation and mirror. Validation and empathy. Hold up a mirror. Um, recognize and give your energy to change talk. Um, I didn't say this earlier, but always pay attention to nonverbals. Mm. And what people are telling you, ask them about that. Sure. Ask them about, you know, trust yourself to do that. Plant seeds for the next conversation. Uh, Bob, thanks so much for sharing uh, with us your, your wisdom when it comes to uh, effectively communicating with others. And doesn't uh, mean doesn't mean I'm good at it. Just, you know. <laughs> well, like you said, uh, free it's free advice free you get advice, what you pay that's for. That's right. Yeah, well, yeah. well, so far I I feel like I am getting a lot, and I think our audience is too. Uh, that that's for sure. You should you should ask Jenny. You know, she would say, "Ah, <laughs> oh, well, he said that, huh?" <laughs> <laughs> that's Bob's wife, right? So uh, I know that you want to leave us with some sort of closing thoughts on, on what we all can do. What is our role uh, mm-hmm. out there in the, is it in the general population, if you will? All right. Yeah, I want to I um, briefly talk about, for the professionals, people who do this as a business, the difference between uh, transactional versus the transformational aspects of your job. But also, to all of you, I want to I speak to uh, the transformational role we all play. So 
transactional versus transformational, they're, they're not necessarily separate, you know. But a, a committed relationship is a good illustration. We don't get in a committed relationship to manage a household, right? You enter a relationship for the transformative, to be loved and to love, to share joy and burdens, shared meaning, um, to have meaning and connection. And the transactions of a household are necessary. But when we settle into the task, the transformation, and we've all done it, okay, I'm guilty of it, we're in danger of losing what makes us most alive, what makes the, the relationship most alive. The relationship goes stale, okay? And stale relationships and, and, and you know, Boy, I lost something here. Relationship goes stale. Stale food is neither enjoyable nor nutritious. Stale relationship, so too with that. Tragically, if your job is stale, then the people you serve are like you serve likely have stale job searches too. Mm. Um, transactions are the details of the job, the case notes, staging records, whatever the details of your job. And good transactions can lead to transformational aspects, but Use a transaction to make the connection. Don't focus on the transaction. Then you'll understand the individual better. If you're making connections, the relationship will deal deepen, and you'll feel good about what you're doing. Um, instead, focus on understanding and being empathic. Remember why you got into this business. Okay, I think most people in the audience in this business, they got into this business... I've asked this question many times. Only Chris gave me a different answer than I was expecting. Of course. But, but I think uh, we were talking prior to um, starting this, and uh, I think most people got into this business because they like people. They like working with people. And they wanted to make a difference. And they believed that they could. So for, for the professionals in this audience, as well as parents, you have such an honored role. Just think of your transformational role and power. You're like teachers and parents. Um, your influence can make a difference for decades, for better or for worse. Believing and loving make a difference. Improving your skills make a difference. A good parent or teacher helps us see potential that we can't see ourselves. Helps us believe in ourselves, especially when we don't believe in ourselves or are fearful, doubtful. Helps us see that our Courage is bigger than our fears. Not surprisingly, I believe there's nothing more transformational or satisfying than helping somebody become employed. I know from personal experience that there's nothing more transformational or meaningful than going from unemployment to a job. And I'll always be grateful to Chris McVeigh and Andrea Zuber. Here it is nearly 17 years and I'm still saying their names. Today, I'm speaking to you because Andrea 